Hi, I'm your host, Coy Atkins, and today's episode is about the disappearance of a young college student who went to San Francisco to follow her passion for photography. This is the story of Kristen Monteferi. Kristen Monteferi was born June 1, 1979 in Connecticut. Her mother, Debbie, was a teacher and her father, Bob, was an electrical engineer. Her parents moved to Charlotte, North Carolina shortly after she was born. By the summer of 1997, Kristen was finishing her freshman year at North Carolina State University. She signed up for a summer class that taught photography at University of California, Berkeley. She made the move to the San Francisco Bay Area alone. She found a room for rent across the bay in Oakland, on Craigslist with four male roommates. She quickly found two part-time jobs. One was at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and the other was at Spinelli's Coffee Shop at the Croker Galleria Mall. Only three weeks after her 18th birthday, on June 23, 1997, Kristen ended her shift at the coffee shop around 3 p.m. There are two different things that I found about what may have happened when she left the coffee shop. One is that she asked a coworker about directions to Baker Beach for a party that she was thinking of going to. The other is that she asked directions to Baker Beach because she wanted to spend some time alone at the beach. And Baker Beach is located about 30 minutes west of the mall. It's about a mile of beachfront that starts at the south end of the Golden Gate Bridge. It has never been able to be confirmed if she ever went to a party or if there was actually a party at the beach that night, but the one thing that is known is that she did not return home on the night of the 23rd. June 24th was supposed to be the first day of her photography class after she already paid $925 for it, but she never showed up. A few days later, Bob called Kristen and left a voicemail on the house's landline. One of the roommates returned Bob's call and said that he hadn't seen Kristen for three days. While the roommates didn't think much of this, it really worried Bob and Debbie, and they immediately hopped on a plane and headed to California. In 1997, cell phones weren't as common as they are now, and Kristen didn't have one. There wasn't any social media to send her messages or see if she posted anything. Her only way to communicate with her parents was through the house phone. On June 27th, Bob and Debbie were in Oakland. When they didn't find Kristen at the house, they contacted the Oakland Police Department to report her missing. While she was reported missing on the 27th, it wouldn't be until the 30th that the Oakland Police began their investigation. They used bloodhounds to trace Kristen's scent to a bus stop outside of the mall where she worked. They also picked up her scent at Sutro Heights Park, which is just south of Baker Beach. But that's the last place where they were able to pick up a scent. The 
Back at the room Kristen was renting, Bob and Debbie found a Bay Guardian newspaper that was in the trash can. There was a personal ad that was circled that read, Friends, female seeking friends to share activities who enjoy music, photography, working out, walks, coffee, or simply the beach. Exploring the Bay Area, interested, call me. The police immediately tried tracking down who placed the ad, but the Bay Guardian had already purged their records for when the ad ran. Investigators couldn't be sure if Kristen ever responded to the ad or not. Bob, Debbie, and their other three daughters hit the streets of San Francisco, passing out flyers, talking to the media, and doing everything that they could to bring attention to Kristen's disappearance. One of the three daughters was Kristen's seven-year-old sister, who was passing out flyers telling people that her sister was missing, asking them to just look at the flyer and see if they've seen her sister. On July 10th, 1997, KGO-TV received a phone call from a man who claimed that Kristen was murdered by two women and her body was disposed of under a wooden bridge near Point Reyes, which is about an hour and a half north of San Francisco. Police followed up on the lead when they didn't locate a body in that location. Police then traced the call back to 36-year-old John Onuma, who lived near the mall. John initially denied making the phone call, but he later admitted to it. John said that the call was fake and that he was making up the claims about the women because he thought that they were trying to get his girlfriend, Jill Lampo, fired from her job. But police weren't done with John just yet. They began searching his apartment and found what was described as a sizable amount of blood. My goal is to make this a pretty fast ad. A couple years ago, I wrote a book called One Moment. It's about a guy named Micah. He never planned to return to his hometown in Florida, but things don't always go as planned. While he's back home, he's dealing with the mental, physical, and emotional impact of being in a war. He then meets Sarah, and she is escaping an abusive marriage. The two have an undeniable bond, and a relationship that begins. When the abusive ex finds out about this new relationship, he gets involved in their lives. While this puts a strain on the relationship, it's only the beginning, because dark secrets start to come out. And the truth is, maybe you never really know anyone. There are a few ways that you can get this book if you're interested. The Amazon link is in the show notes if you just want the book. Or you can join my Patreon community for $5 a month. You'll get two extra true crime episodes, a copy of One Moment, and a few other perks. That link is also in the show notes or on my social media pages. Anyways, hopefully this ad was fast enough, and thank you for listening. Back to the episode. Investigators were hopeful that they may have had a lead when they located blood in John's apartment. But after doing some testing, they learned that the DNA belonged to a cat, which is still very concerning 
that he had a large amount of cat blood around his apartment. Police also learned that John had previously ran ads in the Bay Area newspapers for women, and then he would coerce them into having sex with him. John has never been formally charged in this case for anything, but he was listed as a person of interest, and he does have a connection to Kristen. And I'm going to try and explain this to where it makes sense because it's about to sound a lot like my cousin's brother's uncle's best friend kind of relationship. John was dating a woman named Jill Lampo. Her ex-boyfriend was named Matthew Luke. Matthew was good friends with someone named Kelly Strathman, who worked with Kristen at the coffee shop. While this may not be much, it's definitely odd that John would have this sixth degree of separation from Kristen, especially after he called the news station about her, and that he had histories of running ads in newspapers, and she had an ad from a newspaper in her trash can. After being investigated by the FBI and the Oakland police, John moved to Hawaii in 1999. While there's a lot of strange things going on with him, there just wasn't enough to charge him with a crime. But this wasn't the end of things with John. In 1999, sfgate.com reported that three women came forward to police. Each of them had different encounters with John. They reported that he would torture them, deprive them of sleep, and held them against their will. One woman even said that she was his sex slave. Another said that he beat her whenever she tried to escape him. And he was also described as a human vampire by one of them. Which, honestly, that may describe why there's cat blood in his house. In 2015, an independent investigation was done by Paul Dosty, a former sergeant with Mammoth Lakes Police Department. Paul used a cadaver dog to search the house that Kristen was living at. According to Paul, the dog alerted to the presence of human remains in the basement. In 2017, a forensic anthropologist from the University of Tennessee, Dr. Arpit Voss, visited the same house. Dr. Voss had a device that he created that detected human decomposition chemicals. Dr. Voss used this device to pinpoint an area on Jane Avenue where Kristen's house was and the house next door. Dr. Voss said that this area was more likely the crime scene. Paul and Dr. Voss suggested for the Oakland Police Department to do two things. One was to dig up parts of a concrete slab in the basement, and the other was to take another look at the roommates that Kristen had. As of July in 2022, there's not any information that has been made public that shows the police department has done either of these things. It very well could have been done and just not released to the public. Out of all the articles I went through, I couldn't find anything that went into details about the roommates. The most that I could find is that the police and FBI did interview them multiple times and that they were cleared of having anything to do with Kristen's disappearance. With the possibility of human decomposition in the basement, if that is accurate, then that would most likely point right back to the roommates, for one of them knowing something. But another thing to keep in mind, the house right next to where Kristen was staying, 
It was a halfway house for convicted felons and drug offenders. So, completely hypothetical here and just my opinion, but if Dr. Voss believed he found an area outside the house where the crime scene may have been, then in the basement that there were chemicals of human decomposition, in my mind, if the roommates were involved, then why do something outside the house? Why not wait until she's inside? But if the roommates were not home, and the suspect was someone from the halfway house or a random person, then attacking her outside and then going inside, it seems more logical. While that is just a theory, one thing that is known is that after Kristen left work on June 23rd, she was seen by a coworker talking to a blonde female in the mall. The coworker didn't know who the female was, and from what they could tell, it looked like they were having a quick conversation before going separate ways. In the days after Kristen's disappearance, the local media released statements asking this woman to come forward, mostly just to try and see what her conversation was with Kristen and to see if it would give investigators any more information on where she was going. But the woman never came forward and still to this day has not been identified. Another person that was looked at in this case was real estate mogul Robert Durst. Around the time that Kristen went missing, a 16-year-old girl named Karen Mitchell went missing in Eureka, California. Eureka, it is about five hours north of San Francisco. At first, that seems quite a distance, but for Robert, it doesn't mean much. Robert's been linked to either the disappearance or murder of multiple women from New York, Texas, and California, including the disappearance of his wife. I've covered him in two previous episodes. The most recent was about how he was found guilty and one murder just before he died. According to an article by the Charlotte Observer in 2015, Robert was living in San Francisco in 1997. In 2015, NBC Bay Area News also did an article where they spoke to the Oakland Police Department about Robert's connection to Kristen's case. The Oakland Police Department responded by saying that they concluded their investigation along with the FBI, and that at this time, they did not have any evidence to indicate that Robert Durst was involved in Kristen's disappearance. Kristen's mother, father, and three other sisters have not given up hope. Over the last 25 years, they've continued looking for answers, doing interviews with news outlets, just doing everything that they can to bring attention to Kristen's case. If anyone is listening to this episode that has any information, no matter how big or small you think it is, the FBI is asking that you contact your local FBI office to submit any tips. There will be a link in the show notes to the FBI website that will give information on the phone number for your local FBI office. And... This is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode, but stay tuned after the theme music for a new thing that I'm trying out. Alright, thanks for sticking around. 
I'm going to try this out for a few episodes and see how it goes. For now, I'm calling it The Debrief. The reason behind it is that I feel like a lot of these episodes, they can be a little dark. And while I would like to try and bring a few lighthearted jokes along the way or something, it's very difficult to do that with true crime stories while staying respectful. So the debrief is just going to be a few minutes after each episode with a little bit of a funny story related to true crime stuff. Mostly it will be how criminals do dumb things to get caught. I'm also going to start using this section of the podcast to give shoutouts to people who leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It doesn't have to have five stars. It can be a one-star review and you can talk about how much you hate it. And I will still give you a shout-out. And shout-outs for people who join the Patreon community. And today's story brings us to Park County in Colorado, between Colorado Springs and Aspen. In June, 33-year-old Jeremiah Taylor had a little too much to drink. He broke into the sheriff's office substation when no one was there. From there, he stole a 2013 Dodge Durango patrol car. Also, since this is still an ongoing case, I think legally, I probably have to say the word allegedly, so allegedly he did all of this. But that's not the end of this. He didn't just steal the patrol car. While he was in the patrol car, he had the police radio on. And around 3.30 in the morning, a domestic violence call came out in the next county over. As it's dispatched on the radio, Jeremiah hears the address and makes his way there before any of the other cops make it. The people at the house said that Jeremiah definitely appeared to be drunk, and he started asking where the old man was that was going to shoot someone. Now this is when the real cops show up. Jeremiah then took off in the patrol car. About two hours later, they found Jeremiah in the patrol car. He took off again, leading them on a pursuit going up to 110 miles per hour. In the news report by Fox 31, it said that he broke several traffic laws, which I'm sure he did. Eventually, he crashed, fled into the woods, and he was apprehended with a little bit of a jolt of electricity. Shockingly, Jeremiah was on probation for theft and DUI. He has eight new charges following this incident, including impersonating a police officer. Now, this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day.